Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. I'm glad you're here. As always, I've got a special guest today on the show. His name is Mike Zlotnick. And if you, you can tell from his last name, he's not from the United States. But uh, Mike is a really cool guy, and I know him for several years now from our mastermind. And um, we got a, some cool things to talk about. But before that, I want to talk to you about realestateinvestingmastery.com, realestateinvestingmastery.com. Most of our episodes now have show notes. So, I mean, they all have show notes, but most of our episodes now have transcriptions. You can actually go to the website and download some of our transcriptions, which are really cool. I wanted to tell you also, if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com, you will find some downloads. You can download a free lease option contract that I'm giving away for free. And I also have a Wholesaling 101 mind map that you can download for free as well. So make sure you go and check that out. I also wanted to say thank you guys who have been leaving us reviews in iTunes. I am going right now into Real Estate Investing Mastery in iTunes. I'm going to read you some of the last few reviews that we've had. And I just wanted to uh, just give a good, nice, awesome shout out to a few of you guys that have left reviews. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, we have over 444 reviews. They're not all five stars. And uh, for some reason, it's not opening up right now. I have the beach ball spinning on my Mac, which is weird. But um, I'll get to the reviews later here. Uh, I want to introduce you guys to Mike Zlotnick. Mike has uh, been a debt and equity investor in real estate since 2000. He's been in the business a long time. Um, he started his career and he spent over 15 years in the information technology field and uh, managing IT stuff, you know, risk, business intelligence, quality systems, software processes and stuff like that. So he's had, he has a long history in IT, information technology. So he's super smart. Uh, his passion though has always been in real estate investing because you can predict your income and you can predict the outcome many ways in real estate that you can't in business, in general business. And uh, in 2009, he joined a company called Tempo Funding, which is a mortgage pool fund. And he's been the managing partner, vice president. Now he's the CEO of the company. Is that right? Yeah. Mike? That's You're the right. CEO of the company. And you have founded another company also called TF Management Group LLC, which has two new real estate investment funds. Is that right? That's right. We awesome. have. Um a fund similar to Tempo Funding, we have a TF Investment Fund 2 and our flagship fund is Tempo Opportunity Fund, which is um, both growth and income fund invests into um, uh, fix and flip projects on a hard money side, and we also do a lot of value-add equity projects. Awesome. And you've been growing strong, so you're you're pooling mortgages together. So I'm sure you, you're pretty um, – what's the word I'm looking for – well-versed in all of the legal and licensing issues with all of that. Yeah, yeah. We, we have uh, 506 uh, uh, Reg D funds. Uh, we have a C fund and a B fund, and uh, it's all that jazz for sure. Nice. <laughs> so a lot smarter than most of us listening to this podcast, which, I'm, which is why I asked you to be on the show, Mike. Uh, but you also wrote a book called How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Investment Fund, uh, people can get that on Amazon. Again, that book is called How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Investment Fund. Is that right? That's right. Cool. Well, how long ago did you write that? There's the book. You can see okay. it. Well, this is an audio podcast, Mike. Yeah, this is an audio podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wrote the book last year. I actually uh -huh. did it with uh, working with Corey Boatwright. You know Corey yeah. really well. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote the content. We did a um, uh, sort of a podcast interview. Recorded the book that got transcribed. So it's a transcription of a few hours conversation, and it's focused on the key questions investors should ask before they uh, invest into any real estate investment fund, public or private. Nice. Okay. And uh, you also have a podcast of your own, right, Mike? Yeah. It's called um, the Big Mike Fund. Big Mike Fund podcast. <laughs> I am known as the Big Russian or Big Mike. 
So I couldn't come up with a more interesting name. It's the Big Mike Fun <laughs> Podcast. I like it. It talks about real estate, then it talks about funds and uh, all the interesting stuff. Now, when you say talk about funds, what do you mean by that? What I mean is uh, most investors are used to individual property investing. Maybe single family, uh, duplex, quad, triplex, just a sort of one to four family, or a little bit more advanced stuff where people invest into small multifamily, commercial, retail, and whatnot. We do everything. Our funds invest into a broad range of uh, type of deals. So the podcast is focused on getting investors the best education on what funds look like, what the funds do, uh, what are the benefits, pros and cons. Also, we talk with um, a lot of um, project sponsors, borrowers, doers of projects, folks who are in real estate uh, full-time and uh, try to give our listeners perspective of the um, broad perspective, uh, both how to invest in funds, how to choose funds, what the funds do, and give them individual deal investing knowledge, experience, uh, how to find deals, how to sell them, how to get best return investment, and so on. So you're talking about a lot of things, I think, but just clarify, can you again, what is a fund? What is a fund just a big pool of investors' money that goes out and invests in real estate, whether it's commercial or residential? Yeah, Joe, that's basically it. Fund is a pooled investment vehicle. It's the term used. Yeah, uh, That's why it has to be registered uh, with the SEC through a Form D and then on local level, each individual state. But the essence of the fund is a vehicle where there are many investors who put their money in. Uh-huh. And then the fund uh, invests into many projects. So it diversifies risks between many assets. That's good, good. many in, many out. That's, that's, that's the vehicle. There are publicly traded funds known as REITs. Uh-huh. Uh, they trade on exchanges. And there are private funds like ours that um, are available to credit investors through a private placing memorandum. That's the, the official document. Yeah. So you are you dealing only with accredited investors in these funds? Yes um, and no. So the flagship fund, Temp Opportunity Fund, can only accept accredited investors. So for that fund, the answer is yes. And then we have funds like TF Investment Fund 2. But let's take a few sophisticated but unaccredited investors. So it's a limited number. Most investors have to be accredited. That makes sense. So you talked a minute ago just about finding deals. Are you still involved, Mike, in the business of going out and making offers on individual homes? Um, or are you just big, big picture trying to get funds, investors together, and bigger projects? The, the bulk of my business is not doing individual deals. Uh, I'm sort of the money man, the money guy. The, I, I don't want to trademark on anybody's uh, name, but we, we marry uh, money and opportunities. As a fund manager, it's, it's a primary function, raising capital and finding great sponsors, great great borrowers, and deploying capital. And that's what I do day, day in and day out. I do have some partners where we are finding deals. Independent of my fund management function, we have an operation in Jacksonville, Florida, where uh, my partners and I uh, essentially market. We find deals. We used to rehab them, but we stopped mostly just wholesaling. So we are doing marketing. Uh, so I know that part of the business just um, not actively uh, investing into, we made a conscious decision not to do any rehabs. Essentially, it's all wholesaling at this point. Okay. So when you wholesale these deals, do you lend on them as well to the people who buy them? Uh, Sometimes. It is not a a frequent situation. We, generally speaking, uh, they have their own financing. If they do ask for funding, we may consider funding them, but that's a separate activity. So the the lending business stands on its own and has nothing to do with wholesaling. Okay. Uh, rarely ever we, we actually invest in into the deals that we wholesale because they're separate businesses and um, most of the uh, buyers have their own financing. What do you enjoy more? Do you enjoy lending, doing the, the funds aspect of the business or actually doing the individual deals? Oh, by far. I, I, I love, I'm passionate about being a 
fund manager. Uh, I may not sound like I'm excited about it, but I am. <laughs> I absolutely love the business of uh, networking with good sponsors, good people. And that's uh, a step number one. Uh, once we find people we want to work with, we look at their deals. And sometimes it takes a while to, to get the first deal. Sometimes we get the deals right away. So I very much enjoy placing capital and deals. But on the other side, I I also enjoy networking with capital investors, folks with money, yeah. who um, want to be passive. They don't want to be involved actively. They want to get a return, get benefits of a fund diversification, fund strategies. So I like to be in the middle. I mean, the function of, of a fund manager is sort of my genius. So I very much like it. Uh-huh. Is it okay to ask how much you and your funds manage? How much capital? Sure, sure. We're not that that big. We um, we have uh, you know flagship fund which is one year old. Uh, we this is a flagship fund growth and in income. We have uh, a number approaching um, eight million uh, dollars. Um, eight eight million dollars. Yeah, on that flagship fund, we have another fund slightly under three million. We have a um, number of other uh, individual deals. So all in all, we are, you know, on the street, maybe around $15 million. That's probably an accurate number. That's really good. Yeah, but we're growing. We, we are with transition. So one thing I wanted to say, we've done major transition from doing hard money. And that space has been brutally competitive. There's a lot of big players. The yields yeah. have compressed, as you know. Yeah. I'm not really interested to grow in the space. We're maintaining our business and... Um, uh, doing deals with folks we like, small loans, sub $100,000 loans. In that space, we can maintain pricing because the loans are small. Big boys don't want to play there. There's a lot less yield compression in that space. And what I enjoy most, the long-term value-add equity deals with the proper bank leverage. That's just real estate 101. Yeah. Any Any market in the country, anywhere? We are pretty well diversified. A couple of days ago, I just finished uh, an investor um, update call, and uh, I was looking over the portfolio of, um, of deals where we have, and they're all over the map. So I'll give you an example. We have um, uh, equity deals in, uh, give you some examples, in Illinois, Texas, Georgia, California, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, wow. Missouri, and yeah, it's all over the map. So the equity deals, we are we're well diversified because we're focused on working with the right people, regardless of where they are. We're not focused necessarily on a specific region. People first, deals second. People first, deals second. Good. I got a bunch more questions to ask you, Mike, but I know some people are dying to figure out how to get a hold of you right now. They may have a project they're working on, a good deal they want to borrow some money on. How can they reach you? So it's very easy. Uh, our primary website is um, tempofunding.com from the word temporary, T-E-M-P-O, tempofunding.com. Cool. Also, people can go to bigmikefund.com. It'll actually redirect them. This is a podcast, but it'll, it'll redirect them to a landing page on tempofunding.com. This is where we have the podcasts. And uh, folks can email. Uh, just email me into Mike. Uh, M-I-K at tempofunding.com. That's, that's the easiest way to, to get a hold of me. Mike at tempofunding.com. Very nice. Bigmikefund.com and tempofunding.com. The, I don't know if I did our introduction justice, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I was distracted with my really yummy green juice. Do you see my green juice here? I know oh, this, I know this, this is an audio podcast. Yeah. You're you're juicing up. <laughs> I'm juicing up. And yeah, iTunes wasn't working. I was trying to read these reviews and it is working now. But anyways, I wanted to tell you guys, uh, listening to the podcast, that I met Mike, um, boy, four years ago. I don't know how long have you been in the Collective Genius, Mike? I think since 2013. Five Maybe years. More than five about, years, yeah. It's about as long as I've... I was in it when they only had one group. That met. Yeah, I remember. It was very small. Like I remember. That's what it was. Yeah. Now it's like six groups or something six, like that. But anyway, Mike has always been in the group. And these are like high-level mastermind people, it, people in our mastermind that are, are doing tons and tons of deals. And um, Mike has always been seen as the go-to expert for everybody in that group on anything to do with money. And uh, Mike is uh, one of the most favorite guys 
in the mastermind. And um, so he comes, he, a ton of experience, highly regarded with uh, among his peers. And if any of you have any interest at all, I don't get anything out of promoting Mike. I just do it because I like him. And um, But if you, had, if you have any interest in either lending money with Mike or borrowing money from Mike, this isn't a solicitation, by the way. I'm just telling you, Mike is such an awesome guy, trustworthy, and uh, been in the business a long time. I'd really recommend that you reach out and talk to him. And I'm honored to have him on our podcast. So I'm glad you're here, Mike. I wanted to just go back a little bit to your, your tell us a little bit about your personal story. Where are you from? And uh, tell us about your family a little bit. Sure, Joe. First of all, you're so kind. You're too kind. I appreciate the kind word. <laughs> yeah, I very much enjoy sort of financing and doing deals and appreciate the investor consideration to invest with us or bring us the deals. So we, by the way, we only work on a referral basis. So if okay. you're coming to us and there is no referral chain, we will be a little bit more close-minded uh, starting to work with you. If they know you and they work with you and they're being coached by you, uh-huh. that's a significant value add. So if they're working with Joe as a um, uh, coaching student or mastery student and Joe, you put in a good word for them, that's a significant referral. So okay. from that perspective, we are looking, we would be much more open to work with them because you know them, you work with them, you think they're a good person to work with. Awesome. So that's Thanks. my two sons, how we work. That's awesome. I'm originally from a small republic of the former Soviet Union, and I left when I was still Soviet Union. I left in 1989. Wow. I am from Moldova, but they still call me Big Russian. I do speak Russian. Russian is my native tongue. Uh, I came here in 89 sort of as a political refugee from the communists. So How I, old were you in 89? I was almost 18. Okay. I came over you know, a few weeks before my 18th birthday. Did you come over by yourself or with your family? With my mother. My mother and I came over, uh, and my sister with her family came over a few years later. So we've been living in the States where you're citizens. And uh, uh, so. I'm just curious, uh, by the way, when you become a U.S. citizen from another country, can you, do you still have your, pa- your Russian passport? Is it still uh, for me, it was it? different. I, I had to f- give up my passport completely. So oh, yeah. when I left the Soviet Union, they said, you're leaving us, goodbye, have a nice life. You're no longer our citizens, we hate you. So I left Soviet, Soviet Union with no, no, no documents other than like an exit paperwork. Now, do you still go back? Are you allowed to go no, back? No, I, I, I don't go back. I, I, I would, one of these days, could take my kids on uh, vacation to see maybe St. Petersburg or, or Moscow. But um, I have plenty of other vacation spots that I'd like to visit first, <laughs> with all due respect. Okay. I absolutely uh, have tremendous respect for Russia and other republics, just uh, you know, not priority number one for vacation for me. I get it. Okay. But I live in Brooklyn, New York, married, I have four kids and a cat. And cool. uh, Four kids? I didn't know that. Yeah, it's I a zoo. Two. <laughs> Well, you know how it is. My oldest is turning 18, going to college. Time flies. So. Wow, good for you. So you have four. How old are your kids? 18, 13, uh, um, 8, and 6. Wow, awesome. Shazoo. How about you? How old are your kids? Four kids. I got 14 and 13-year-old boys and uh, 10 and 7-year-old girls, and we uh, we homeschool them. So it's you think you have a zoo. It's a zoo here. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, so it's you, never boring around here. I think we understand each other in the same wave, wave, wavelength when it comes to uh, managing kids. So. <laughs> if it wasn't for um, for our wives, I don't think we would have any sanity left. Yeah, 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 yeah I agree with you. <laughs> so uh, you live in Brooklyn. So what got you started in real estate? Why? What, what's piqued your interest in that? So what got me started when I bought my first apartment in 2000, um, just got married and we were, uh, we were renting for one year and um, we needed a place. So we bought an apartment and um, I very much thought it was, a, it was a great investment. It's not a secret. New York has been nothing but a write up. So it hasn't seen a, a, a cycle in a long time. So when I picked up apartment and a year later, I saw apartments were going up. So I bought eight more apartments in the same building uh, a few, three years later. And then... What year was this? Oh, 2003. 
Okay. So I bought my first one in 2000. And then I saw it was going up. I said, this is a good thing. Real estate seems to be going up a whole lot faster than inflation. So I bought eight more and then I kept buying and selling some. Um, and then I bought 2004, I bought a multifamily house here in Brooklyn. But I got rid of it in 2006 because I realized um, they don't cash flow too well here. <laughs> so if you're looking for cash flow, having a multifamily house means you put in quarter million dollars or 300,000 and you barely break even on a rent roll. From that perspective, uh, you got to be really patient and don't expect any cash flow. Mm-hmm. And after that, kind of uh, been you know just buying here and there, and I went full time 2009, um, sort of out of incidental situation. I spent 15 years in software, and um, I was burnout, out, tired, uh, but I, I had a you know great career, big salary, all that stuff. And then um, uh, in May 2009, uh, I was suddenly laid off because it was a company acquisition, and there was a change of management. And I was told, "Listen, I apologize, my old boss who worked for a number of jobs. He just said." Sorry to say this, but uh, we're laying off, and he was he was let go himself shortly. So I wow. took advantage of that opportunity. Instead of looking for a new job, uh, I literally focused on um, real estate full-time. And my good friend who started Tempo Funding originally said, won't you um, go run it? And I started running Tempo wow. Funding in June of 2009. I really enjoyed it, and uh, kind of it's been a journey since then. Good. And you've always been in New York? Yeah. Uh, I, I lived in Rochester, New York. My mother still lives in Rochester, New York. Okay. And, uh, but in New York State, yeah, all, all my kind of you know, life in the States. Okay. And what got you interested in lending? What, what, why not just do deals and, and be the owner? What, what got you interested in being the, the lender as well? It's an evolution. We started 2009. We, we've done a lot of transactional funding, which basically short-term bridge loans on fix and flip projects. It's, it's just almost like by incident because my good friend started the fund and was an investor in that fund. Uh, and the fund was one that was effectively in infancy stage. And uh, we realized that lending seemed to be easy. I mean, you don't have to own the properties, you don't have to deal with it with renovations. And it, it kind of um, uh, met my general kind of things that I like. I don't like to pick up a hammer and do work physically myself, just personality. So lending money instead of being the owner is, is a better uh, is a better deal. And it's kind of all um, evolved into, you know, from short-term loans into longer-term, uh, from a few days loans into weeks, months. We don't do very long-term loans. We typically do six-month loans as sort of our target. But I like being... Um, a lender more than I like being an owner because of the you know tenants and toilets problems. I do have apartments and I do have houses and I own them and it's all over source management and I, I don't like the to be interacting with um, you know with problems. Who, who likes who likes that work? Getting a phone call, listen, something's broke. Yeah, oh, um, I know. So you'd rather be the bank than the landlord. Yeah, I better be the bank. And same thing on the even on equity deals. I invest in projects, but I don't want to be the project sponsor. I mean, most of the projects we are a limited partner. We invest in deals uh, with the right people, and they solve problems. It's cool. you know key, key characteristic is uh, sponsor abilities to deal with issues. If they're good, if they know what they're doing, I'll happily invest. So equity investments doesn't mean you have to be active uh, participant. You can be passive investor. And just sort of you know, supporting the uh, the project sponsor, uh, I very much like that part of the equation. Again, it's it's all about picking the right deals and the right people. All right, good. Let's talk about the real estate market, Mike. How is real estate doing right now? What's hot? Um, what are some good opportunities? So I like to think of real estate market in three dimensions, and there are various types of real estate. Right. So you can absolutely um, we can just, just talk about types of real estate. You have residential. There's a, there's a whole world in the residential. Uh, there are properties, people buy portfolios, buy and hold, people who flip, people who wholesale. There are major players, institutional players who come in and buy major portfolios. It's just one little sector. Then there are retail space, self-storage, commercial, industrial, office, all that stuff. So I'll talk about a few things and um, 
not covering because the universe is just too big to talk about. Yeah. So number one thing that we are seeing across the board is the fact that the interest rates are, uh, are rising. And rising interest rates cause grief for um, uh, real estate investors in general. The cost of financing goes up, mortgage payments go up, and some investments are much more sensitive to the interest rate, some less. So, uh, but overall, it's the same impact. So, as rates rise, the markets in general slow down. So, the price appreciation should slow down. In some cases, it will uh, it has a potential of um, going back down. So, at this point, we are facing historically cap, historically high cap rates. Sorry, historically low cap oh, rates. Right, yeah. yeah. Historically low cap rates, historically high prices. All that means is that um, if you're buying, getting into new projects today, you have to have a strong value add. If you're just buying retail and the rates go up, the market forces will force instead of appreciation, but they'll force negative appreciation. Basically, the things will, will, will come down in prices. So that's the number one observation. Number two observation, there is an um, interesting um, dynamic happening in, in the States that has been going on for a few years, and uh, it's been taking, you know, sort of a, a bigger mind share. It's the fear of Amazon. So Amazon seems to be eating um, the lunch of many department stores and retailers. And uh, retail properties, uh, number of malls, a number of um, plazas uh, are trading at a significant uh, discount of reconstruction cost, fair market value, because there's, there's a fear that Amazon will eat their lunch. And uh, that whole area, retail properties, uh, is a contrarian play today. We actually like the sector very much. So I wanted to mention this because everything else has gone up. And uh, that sector is sort of um, a value play. If you can find retail properties, you can get into at the right price, at the right at the high cap rates. And we're generally getting in today at, at the, in the nines and above. You can find a phenomenal opportunity while everything else seems to be overpriced and hot. So if one thing I wanted to mention is the contrarian play, and that's the retail properties. The, the other thing that's happening is there's a, Big momentum play in many markets. I see it here in New York City, and I'm sure you see it uh, in your neck of the woods in many cities, it is ongoing residential construction. So that has been happening for a number of years now. There appears to be still shortage of residential housing units, and um, the new construction is very heavy. The area of the highest demand is the area of sort of entry level. So this is what everybody's building. That's the sector of the market that seems to be doing extremely well. And uh, it's a momentum play at this point. So if anything, uh, that's probably number one momentum play in the United States. How, do you, how, how long do you see that being a, a momentum play right now? Uh, I still think we have a couple of years left. Uh, I'm talking about entry level. So it's very different for high-end stuff. High-end stuff already seeing weakness. We're talking about high-end condos, and uh, I would stay away from that sector because that sector is already overbuilt. I heard an interesting statistic that New York City has five years of supply for condos that are priced to five million and more. Five, five years supply. supply. That means what that means for everybody listening is, if not one more condo came on the market, it would take five years to sell all the condos that are on the market right now. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly the case. Which is terrible. We, this this is this is a serious issue. I've heard well, the uh, um, prices have dropped fifteen twenty percent in some areas of New York in the high end. Exactly the high end. Exactly the high end. The prices are dropping. The rental rates are dropping because they're overbuilt. Wow. So. But the entry-level condos, the cheapest stuff is selling like hotcakes. They're building condo entry-level, two-bedroom, two-bath, nothing fancy, not, not a fancy penthouse. That stuff is selling because that's still affordable. The reason uh, there's so much more impact on the high end, uh, twofold. Number one is the, uh, the recent tax law changes. The tax cut, which became a, a tax increase for New York 
city because the property taxes are, are kept at $10,000 and mortgage deductibility is kept at a million dollars. So these high-end properties, mortgage interest no longer deductible, taxes over $10,000 are no longer deductible. That's why those properties are suffering. While entry-level stuff, uh, New York City, you know, I live in Brooklyn, so entry-level condo here is 600000 It's still affordable. If you have, you know, if two people are, two people are working, uh, they can get two-bedroom, two-bath apartment with two salaries and a mortgage. And the mortgage and taxes are fully deductible. That's why that stuff is still selling well, as an example. And uh, that's true not only in New York, it's true in many other markets. Ground-up construction for entry-level housing, townhouses, uh, single-family is just booming. So that's that's a classic momentum play. I think a couple more years. Uh, I don't think we, we are looking at a, any major correction uh, for the reason that um, the supply is still uh, short. The demand continues to be solid. Interest rates are impacting lower end stuff in a much lower degree. So if you're buying, I'll give you an example, we have a project coming up, we're gonna invest into new construction of nine townhouses of all places in Jacksonville, Florida. So we're gonna do hard money loan. But the project developer is developing nine houses and they're gonna sell at about 170, maybe $175,000 a house. You really can't find a cheaper new product. It's a good product, it's affordable product, and people go in. And that's, that's, that's something that there's a need for housing. People need to live somewhere. My goodness. I'm looking right now at Zillow for rentals. Like if I was going to move my family there, I would need a four bedroom. How many bedrooms do you have, by the way? <laughs> Just curious. With four kids. My house has uh, four bedrooms. Uh, I do have an extra bedroom in the basement. I have a full basement. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I used to have a four-bedroom apartment, and I, and I moved. That was my upgrade from a four-bedroom apartment to a four-bedroom house. Oh, my gosh. Is it a standalone home, or is it like one of those row homes? It's a standalone home. It's a standalone uh, home. We do have a lot of row homes. Uh, yeah, we were specifically looking for a house with a little bit of a backyard. <laughs> uh-huh. Really? And it's not, not as easy to find. A lot of them don't have anything. So we did find, you know, an okay house. So we're happy with our house. It does have a little bit of a backyard. You know, it's a full 40 by 100 feet lot. So, Well, you know, yeah, I'm looking at some here. Here's a 2,050 square foot townhouse. And they they crammed six bedrooms in a 2,000 square foot. That's a tiny one. That's really small. Yeah. And I'm looking at the pictures. And a lot of this reminds me of Europe. And I've never been to New York, actually. But... um if you look at some of these homes, they're small and uh, very cozy. But uh, wow, it's amazing! All right, so um, you, I, I wanted to ask you about retail because um, every time I drive around, I always get real sad when I see a business go out of business, and you see that a lot happening. Right? Um, well, you always have. I don't know if it's any higher now, but you see it a lot in those retail strip malls. Yeah. Um, the mom and pop shop, they can't handle it and they close up. Maybe it's a franchise, maybe it's not. You, you're more bullish on the retail right now. Can you explain that a little bit more? Why, why do you think the fears of Amazon taking over the world are unfounded? So uh, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, I, I just feel that the prices are right. They're trading below reconstruction cost. They're trading at the current entry-level cap rates with some level of vacancy, nine and above. So you're basically now buying the stuff below reconstruction cost. And uh, the other interesting thing is um, uh, properties with service-oriented tenants is the way to go. So gyms, doctor offices, dentist offices, uh, haircuts, experiential things, like um, you know, gym, jumbo gyms. Uh, I forgot the name of them. Some of these, you know, you go out there just to have fun. The restaurants, um, that kind of industry, you just can't order gym experience from Amazon. You can't order a haircut from Amazon. You can't have your teeth cleaned at Amazon, right? So those things are not going away. So uh, the plazas and malls that have a uh, good location uh, and you can get into at a great price, 
they're still going to be around. Now, Macy's, Sears, JCPenney, those shops may go out of business. Well, what comes instead? So the next area of opportunity in the same retail locations, we have investments in those projects, are conversions. The conversions from a Macy's department store into a self-storage class A environmental controls property with some retail around it. So now these things are no longer anchored by a big department stores, but by a self-storage. As uh, unsexy as it sounds, people still like to store stuff. And in a, um, uh, and I must say, in a big city, you don't have that much space to build a new self-storage facility. So if you find the right area and you can participate in the conversion project, you can get a good return on investment and you're improving the city's uh, usability of the space. So we have an investment like this and we're looking into two more uh, a bit later this year. And I very much like these conversion projects because they they basically change the highest and best use of the property from a department store to a self-storage uh, facility. And that seems to be recession-resistant type of a sector. That's why I like it. Amazon will continue to change um, people's habits. People order everything. I, we even know I get rings on my door two or three times a day. There's some delivery. My wife orders everything online. So we get delivery, delivery, delivery. You know, it's funny. I used to be excited about getting something in the mail. And now the first thing I think is, oh, man, another box to break down and stuff into our recycling bin. You know, so. Well, that's that's the reality. I, now we have a lot of recycling, a lot of boxes every week. The amount of uh, boxes that's going back in the recycling is very high. The patterns change. Um, occasionally, we still like to go to the mall. I can tell you my kids still like to go to the mall, especially exper- exper- the malls with experience. You go there and there's something that they really like to uh, to do. Either, uh, I don't know, it's either some food or some something. Like a the carousel. Are, the rides have the carousels. Yeah, right? something. Something is still there. So it's not going to disappear overnight. Uh, more delivery will happen. But at the same time, uh, what's interesting is there's some also conversion opportunities in these industrial warehouses that were totally not needed. Now they need it because they need distribution centers. You know, what's interesting, too, related to that is uh, Sam's Club announced, I don't know, four or five months ago, they were closing a bunch of stores. and People were panicking. But they said, no, 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 it's not like business is hurting. They're converting these Sam's Clubs into warehouses for distribution centers to distribute things that people are, you know, buying in between stores or, or uh, from Walmart.com and things like that. And uh, that it's things are changing, and you you got to be, you got to be looking for that, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a, that's the same pattern. We have Costco here, and people still go to Costco. It's, it's been a, such a long time since we've gone. We're maintaining membership, but we order everything online. They just deliver. So especially the stuff that's just standard, toilet paper, paper towels, cereal boxes, you don't need to go to the store to pick it up. They'll deliver it to you for free. But they still need the store. They still need to be able to use it as essential as a big warehouse. If you think about it, that's what it is. It's a big warehouse. So instead of people going there, they just have people who just, you know, pull orders and send delivery trucks. You know, what's interesting, too, is we've been doing this more and more at Walmart doing the pickup where we'll order it online, but still go there, wait in the car and they'll bring it out to you. Have you done that yet? I haven't done that yet. That's a that's certainly a great experience. Uh, you have to just get used to it, but you're, you're saving yourself time. Time is too, too precious to waste. So going in through the aisles and picking food is not necessarily optimal. Some people very much enjoy doing it. Occasionally, I actually like to go shopping because you want to look at the products you pick up. But most yeah. of the times, if it's standardized stuff, uh, you, you can just order delivery. So that dynamic will continue to probably get more embedded in our lives that we, we value, value our time, but we, we want to spend more time with the service-oriented experiences. When I go okay. to the mall, I can tell you what I do when I go to the mall. You're going to laugh at this, but I send my kids. Uh, oldest one has a credit card. Uh, the second one gets cash. They run around. They, they, they absolutely want to go to the mall. They want to try on stuff. They, want to, they enjoy putting on clothing, and it, I mean, it's a girl's thing. Uh-huh. I sit in a massage chair. Uh-huh. That's what I want to do. I don't want to do anything else. I just want to read an article, and uh, it's a little different experience. Uh-huh. But I want a massage chair, talking about, you know, 
experience. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too. Um, the Apple store provides an experience and uh, there is one mall in St. Louis that is one or two malls that are doing really, really well when the other malls around them are closing. And it's the mall that has the Apple store. And uh, you go inside that mall and there are no empty stores. Well, I take that back. There are a few empty stores, but they have those signs on them where they're rebuilding that tells you what the next store is coming. Mm-hmm. And it blows me away when everybody's saying, you know, the, the sky is falling, malls are falling apart. Some of them are, but there's still some out there that are doing really, really well. It's always hard to find a parking spot at this place. And that's what I like to do. I like to go to the Apple store and, uh, and, and just look at what's, what they have new or what's, what's going on there. I uh, think about this, what you just mentioned, that malls that are, not, that are failing, those are the malls to look at. And if you can figure out what redevelopment you could do, example is self-storage doesn't have to be, but it's one of the um, sectors. Mm-hmm. If there's a need for, for, uh, for self-storage, that might be significant opportunity in those properties. If you're the owner of that property, you're in panic. You're paying taxes. You're paying insurance. You have an empty property. It's yeah. a it's a drain, and uh, they're selling them at a, such a discount that um, that's where the opportunity is. If if you could come up with a good plan and, and and you know what you can do with it. Yeah, there is a um, right in our area, and it's a growing area of St. Louis. There are two outlet malls that were built within weeks of each other, finished and opened within weeks of each other. And one of them is from a really well-known nationally recognized outlet mall operator. And the other one is a new guy in town, whatever. Well, the new outlet mall hasn't been doing well. The other one has been doing great, but a developer is coming in and bought it. And it's right next to a big top golf that's coming in and uh, everybody's talking about it. And so this area is being, but anyway, my, my the developer who bought the outlet mall that's not doing well is going to be turning it and converting it into an entertainment complex because of the big top golf that's there i think this is brilliant they're wanting to turn it into a place where people go to have fun so they're going to um, put in a bunch of restaurants and bars and um like uh places where people can like a theater and people can play uh games like Dave and busters or whatever Bingo. and hopefully hopefully it works right because again that's a, it's an experience that people can go there and uh, hopefully it won't turn into this big party place. Maybe it will. I don't know. Maybe that's good for business. But um, it's 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 pretty interesting. And there's there's it's prime real estate. And I think a lot of people are looking at doing these these plays, converting things into something else. It's totally true. Yeah. What you just mentioned is experiment, experiential uh, type of uh, business, and those will continue to do well as overall. Um, income levels rise as people do well in the economy. They are more inclined to go out, they're more inclined to enjoy restaurants, bars, music. And talking about another interesting idea. So uh, I have a project that I'm investing sort of on a personal level, not related to the funds that I manage. It's not real estate, uh, but it is um, taking advantage of the current dynamics. So I have um, an investment that's coming up. It's basically a private club for, for young professionals in Philly. And it's going to be focused around golf simulators. So really? golf things, uh, especially in big cities, people still enjoy uh, golf. They want to learn golf, but they can't afford the time. And Top Golf concept is based on that. Just just mm-hmm. you know, put together a range and forget about just you know, long four or five hour type of outing. So the same concept uh, applies now in the new age of sort of video gaming. You can have gaming simulators instead of um, real life experience. And in the city, you have food and beverage, private club type of uh, environment. So that's yeah. what uh, talking about. That, that's a penthouse space in Philly, just prime real estate. And it's going to be in a penthouse floor. And the golf simulators is that experiential component of it. So that's really cool. Maybe. Hey, one more thing I want to one more thing I want to ask you about. Um, we're getting close to our time here. Um, interest rates, interest rates are rising, Mike. And um, what what are your predictions on how high they can go in the next couple of years? And uh, how is that going to impact you and me, the normal investor who is just flipping houses? That's a great question, and I'm going to say it again. My crystal ball broke a long time ago, and. Um, 
Uh, I have two thoughts on this. So thought number one, Federal Reserve has a dual mandate if you follow what they do. Number one, they have a, a mandate of full economy, uh, full employment, I'm sorry, full employment. So they're fighting unemployment rate. The unemployment rate is historically low. So that drives the rates up. The second mandate is to fight inflation. As inflation picks up, they need to raise rates as well. We are beginning to see some level of wage inflation. The primary risk is wage inflation. Commodity inflation has been around for the longest time. CPI has been artificially manipulated to be low. So inflation seems to be well above the reported figures. So with uh, CPI going up, they'll have no choice but to continue to, ra to, to raise rates. At the same time, there's a secondary theory, which I strongly believe into, and it's called grand conspiracy theory. And the theory says that the United States government cannot afford high interest rates because national debt and the unfunded liabilities that are turning into the national debt uh, every year, uh, they just can't afford high interest rates as a debt service uh, so the consequence of this is that uh, there will be a spike of interest rates. I think the interest rates probably will go up another 50, 75 basis points. I really doubt that's going to be a full 100 basis points. So there's a little bit more room to run. And then I think it's going to slow down and the rate, the increases will stop, uh, especially if the economy starts uh, cooling down. So as the rates uh, reach, um, as I said, another 50 to 100 basis points uh, increase, they'll slow down and then they'll reverse direction. And then over time, they'll actually come down. And the reason for this is, again, the grand conspiracy theory. As we continue to borrow money, national debt will increase, 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 and the debt service will go up. And um, U.S. government will have a crisis if the rates are too high. So politicians will do everything in their power to you know, influence that to, to whatever extent they can, they they will be either hyperinflation, which is very bad. In other words, the, uh, the 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 budget will be out of control. Will have massively um, increasing commodity prices and and just inflation on everything, and that will cause more grief to the economy than going back to low interest rates. In the environment where they just keep kind of kicking the can down the road. And my belief that we'll go back to a lower interest rate environment primarily because of inability to service the debt. So Japan today, they have negative interest rates. So the interest rates are so low that they can keep the budget in check even with the uh, debt to GDP ratio over 200%. We're now over 100% and we're getting worse. So we'll either get to the Japanese model or we'll have major hyperinflation and the dollar will devalue so fast that and the interest rates will be very high. So you're probably not going to be in the middle. You're either going to go into hyperinflation or you're going to go back to low inflation environment that is a lot more stable for the economy. <laughs> I hope that wasn't too complicated. No, I think that's good. And um, I'm starting to see housing. I'm just looking at the news. You know, one of the, it always seems like CNBC has good coverage on housing and real estate in the United States. And um, I like going there sometimes to seeing what's on the news and, and whether this is true or not, they're talking about it now in the news, how pending home sales are taking a dip, um, even coming into the strongest part of the season of the year, year over year, pending home sales are dipping. They're starting to go down and uh, not by a lot, but we're starting to see the end of the continual rise of, of um, strong sales. And um, I'm also just saw another article here that mortgage applications are actually down week over week. It's affordability. I think it, what, where we, it's coming down to is to the point of affordability. So, well, yeah, prices are just not sustainable at this price. The increase, this, the rise. Exactly. So the interest rate, if they keep rising, they'll put even more downwards pressure. This is how we started the call, interest rates. So I would say that we are looking at a one more rise in June, based Federal Reserve. And then uh, there might be a tiny rise in September and then nothing else. I think that's it. We're, we're almost there. We, we should be s s stopping. So where the where the market goes, do you still see, or maybe not still, but do you see New York, California, 
um, Phoenix, the Las Vegas, the hot markets that see the rapid appreciation and all that. Do you see them as a leading indicator for what's going to happen around the rest of the the uh, United States? Well, it's very different. Rule number one of real estate, real estate is local. So you cannot judge the rest of the country by New York or other hard markets. And as we know from the past uh, history, these Las Vegas, Southern California, Southern Florida, Phoenix, the UAE markets. So those markets, if they go through correction, they probably go first. And um, uh, I, I don't think the rest of the country will act the same way. It'll be different based on local dynamics. Uh, New York and San Francisco and those really high markets, my guess is they may slow down. I don't think we're, we're, we're going to see any kind of serious correction other than the very high-end stuff. The, what's going to happen, and normally it happens, the construction will slow down. If they overbuild, it'll take them years to consume all that inventory that they've built. So the consequence of this, the market will flatten out and it'll stay flat, slightly down, until the inventory is consumed. And then again, it'll get into the optimistic cycle. So I don't think we, we're going to see major correction or major, we're not seeing another crash. Let me put it this way. There will be a correction, laws of gravity, but it's probably going to be a moderate correction. And um, it's, it's an affordability correction on a crash. This is not going to be, oh my God, all these, you know, no income, no job loans with all that Wall Street financial engineering. There's a, you know, there's a major crisis. Uh, it, it's been, it's, it's very different. There's some level of that, but not to the degree what it was before. So the crash is not going to be by any means as as bad, not even close. There will be some correction. We might the prices might go down in some markets 10-20%. I'm not looking, you know, 40-50% drops. I don't think so. So minor correction, it's part of the part of the market. So your investments that you're making today should be such that you you should be able to sustain 10 to 20% correction. Whatever your portfolio is, you should be prepared for that. It doesn't mean just go to cash and sit and wait. It just means focus on cash flow, focus on investments that generate good cash flow, and they have good long-term mortgages. Even if all other people are dealing with higher rates, you got good 30-year mortgage to live with it. Yeah, okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. One of the things I like about real estate is that when the market does start to turn, it's a lot slower than it is in the stock market. And so you can read the warning signs a lot sooner you can protect yourself. And, you know, what I, what I tell people is um, always be really, really careful with your position in these deals. And if you only have one exit strategy, no matter what the market's doing, that's dangerous, right? Don't ignore the fundamentals. And uh, I, I remember the people that were doing really well during the crash 10 years ago was, were the people that um, were in and out of deals really fast. The ones that, were wholesaling. There were still people buying properties even when the market was at its worst. And they just were smarter. They, they, they knew who the buyers were. They knew what price they were paying for the properties. And they would just go and offer 10 grand less than yeah. what those buyers were willing to pay for. It, and they did well. Even rehabbers were still being were still able to rehab houses because they had the simple philosophy of whenever they list that house, it's going to be the nicest house and the cheapest house on the block. And so they just adjusted their acquisition strategies and bought lower and were able to protect themselves and worked with banks, local banks that could lend. Um, well, it's a little bit different now. So I know we've been running for a long time, probably should wrap up. Uh, but I wanted to say that, um, as you know, the uh, prices for wholesaling properties today have gotten kind of to the, to the peak. Of, well, not the, not the peak, but they are people paying more for even for difficult rehabs. So. Um, if you're a wholesaler, that's why we like wholesaling because it's a low risk environment. You're basically playing arbitrage. You can make a little spread without uh, the risk of rehab. That's great. But if you are a rehabber, you need to have a top notch operation to be able to execute extremely well because you're working for, for a tighter spread. So that's definitely a pattern we're dealing with every day. And even in the hard money space, um, we, we land on these projects. So we know the deals are tighter and my job number one often is give people feedback that this deal is too tight. I don't want to fund it. Uh, even if you put a big chunk in because you're going to lose money and you're going to be complaining about the deal five times. So from that perspective, 
um, uh, too many people taking too much risk today on these media projects that have very tight spread. And if the market corrects a little bit, instead of making money, you're basically breaking even or going negative. So that's an, that's definitely uh, an observation that um, uh, I've made over the last, I don't know, a year. Uh, everybody still wants to do deals, but the deals are just too tight. And uh, the reason for this is because inventory is a type and people are overpaying because they want to stay busy. Staying busy doesn't mean making money. Really important <laughs> distinction. So. Yeah. Very good. All right, Mike. So again, people, if they want to get a hold of you, tempofunding.com, Mike at tempofunding.com, T-E-M-P-O funding.com. And you also have a great podcast, Big Mike Fund podcast. They can get that on iTunes, any place where you listen to podcasts. Any final words, Mike, you want to say before we hang it up here? No, it's all good. Uh, enjoy the summer. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> hope we have a good summer from the economy perspective. And uh, I think it's a uh, seasonally, certainly uh, uh, interesting, you know, different time of the year. And uh, I, I, like the spring, I like the spring in New York, but you know, the spring is always too short here. So do you have any vacation plans this summer, Mike? Yeah, we have some plans. I think we have a, I got to remember now, we have a um, Cancun vacation. We're going the uh, whole family. Corey Boatwright is there right now, actually. Good for him. Yeah, he's, he's been going to Cancun. Uh, we yeah. go there like, you know, once a year. It's our first time in Cancun. We have not been. We've been to Dominican Republic a number of times. Okay. Cancun be our first. So, and we're thinking about the next cruise. We like cruising. We haven't booked anything yet, but we are thinking. Yeah. I haven't been on a cruise in um, probably three years. So it's been a while. We've got to go. Go, Joe. You have four kids, different ages. There's no better experience. You just ship them over to whatever kids' activities, kids' club. You know, they, they have different names, turtles, uh, I don't know, ducks, whatever they call them. They're different. And uh, kids just go away. They don't, they, they don't want to come back. You check them in and you can enjoy you know, time with your wife. Yeah. All right. Hey, thanks again, Mike, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you guys all later. Are you coming to CG? I'll see you in CG right in a little bit. I can't. Not this one. Oh, I can't make it. I got uh, our church has a big, huge kids camp that we volunteer for. 6,000 kids will be at our church in two days. And so I'm trying to just catch up right now on my sleep because I'm not going to get much of it. Over the next, it's a big deal at our church. It's uh, it's called Jump Kids Camp. If anybody, well, by the time you all are listening to this, it'll be too late. But um, it's a big annual. It's a big highlight of the year for our church, and we volunteer two weeks to do it. And uh, it's amazing. It's just six thousand kids come out on our, to our church, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's it's an opportunity yeah. to have a big impact on um, on people's lives, on families, not just kids. Enjoy it and make an impact. Yeah, good. All right. We'll see you, Mike. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye-bye.